0: Last time in this podcast, Walking with Dante, you heard J. Simon Harris's very fluid and poetic translation of Guido da Manta Feltro's speech in hell in the eighth pit of the fraudulent counselors way down in the eighth circle of fraud. In this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, oh, I should say, hey, I'm Mark Scarbros. <laughs> I should introduce myself, shouldn't I? Anyway. Now, you're going to hear my Workaday translation. What we're going to do is look at the first part of Guido's speech. That is his story up until the moment of his death, which includes his repentance, his turn back toward a bad life, and then his final fall. This is a longish passage. We're in Canto 27. We're at lines 58 through 111. And again, this is the part of Guido's second speech. He's already asked questions about Romagna and been answered with all their heraldic valor from Dante the Pilgrim. And now he's going to give his own speech. So let's get to it. After the flame had raised a ruckus in its own way for a bit, the sharp point moved back and forth, then gave its breath to this.
1: If I were to believe that my answer was crafted for someone who might go back to the world above, this flame would stand here without even a sputter. But because none ever gets out of this pit and makes it back to life, at least if what I hear is true, then I can reply without any fear of getting shamed. I was a military guy, and then got courted as a Franciscan, believing, cinched up like that, that I could make amends. And I'm sure my beliefs would have worked out on my behalf had it not been for the great priest. I hope he gets it bad. He sent me right back to my old tricks. I want you to hear the how and the why. While I was still formed from the bones and flesh my mother gave me, my work wasn't like a lion, but more like a fox. All the underhanded ways and the subterfuges, well, I knew them, was even skilled in their art, so much so that my fame rang out all over my home turf. When I saw that I had come to that part of my life, when a guy should pull in the ropes of his sails and wind up his rigging, what had pleased me in the past began to me so having repented and confessed I did an about face and oh wretch that I am it should have done the trick. But the prince of the new Pharisees had a war on hand in the Lateran, not against the Saracens or the Jews, mind you. Oh no, this one's enemies were other Christians. Not even some guy who'd gone off to vanquish Acre, nor one who wanted to traffic in the sultan's holdings. He didn't even hold his office sacred or other church orders or even my own holy cord, the sort that used to make the ones who wore it emaciated, but as Constantine once sought out Sylvester up on Monte Sorate to cure him of leprosy, so this one called me in as his physician to heal his feverish pride, he asked my counsel, and I kept quiet, because his speech sounded like rank drunkenness, then he
0: went on, Don't let your heart be troubled. I grant you absolution before anything happens. Now you can let me know how to raise Palestrina to the ground. As you know, I can lock and unlock heaven itself because of this pair of keys that my
1: predecessor didn't value properly. I thought his weighty arguments so pushed me on that my silence seemed the worst way to go. So I said, "Father, since you wash me clean of the sin into which I'm going to fall, promise a lot, but deliver far less. That's how to triumph from your
0: exalted throne." I'm gonna take this tale in pieces. This is, again, my rather workaday translation into English of the Florentine, in which I have tried to keep some of the sense of the Florentine intact into modern English without worrying about the poetry that goes on here. In fact, I've been so free as to translate certain place names into their modern place names. We'll talk about that when we get to them. If you want to find this translation, it lives on my website, markscarbro.com. But otherwise, we should just carry on and look at Guido in the piece. Pieces of his own life story. The passage starts at line 58 in Council 27, after the flame had raised a ruckus in its own way for a bit. So apparently the flame, or Guido inside the flame, reacts to what Dante has told him about war and peace in Romagna. And if you remember two episodes ago, that was a very complicated discussion full of all the kinds of symbolism that uh, warlords carried with them, what was on their shields, what was on their flags, trying to explain the various families who had torn Romagna apart, although it wasn't quite at war at the moment that the pilgrim Dante left. Still, nonetheless, there was a kind of general history of Romagna in the late 1200s, and Guido is reacting to this. That is, that things are still a bit up in the air, although there may be a temporary peace. Some of the things that Guido attempted have panned out, and some of the things he attempted have not panned out. He then reacts to this. He moves back and forth, that little tongue of flame. The sharp point moved back and forth, the text says. And the phrase is actually gave its breath or gave its air to this. The idea is that that tongue is speaking inside the flame, the tongue from the soul of Guido, and it's causing air, I guess, to be expelled. And so that air rises up to the tip of the flame and spreads sputters out as language. Remember, we talked about this earlier in this canto as the way these tongues of fire speak. And then Guido gives perhaps some of the most famous lines in all of Inferno. If I were to believe that my answer was crafted for someone who might go back to the world above, this flame would stand here without even a sputter. But because none ever gets out of this pit and makes it back to life at least if what I hear is true, then I can reply without any fear of getting shamed. Why are these some of the most important or famous lines in Inferno? Well, at least they are for English readers, because these six lines, if I believed, if I were to believe that my answer was crafted all the way down to, then I can reply without any fear of getting shamed, are the epigraph to T.S. Eliot's poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. If you're a smarty pants English major, then you know that these are the lines that sit above Prufrock's tale of his own middle-aged decrepitude and (laughs) His, his desire to eat a peach as some kind of act of rebellion, to wear his pants rolled. You know, that nightmarish confession by Prufrock about his empty life is given this as its epigraph. But there are a couple problems here, and let's talk through the problems. One, Guido says, nobody gets out of this pit and makes it back to life, at least if what I hear is true. Well, true enough. You know what? Guido's got good, (laughs) what do I want to say? Good textual evidence for that. Remember way back in Canto 3 at line 9, the inscription above the gate of hell? What does it say? Abandon hope all you who enter here. Guido knows it on fact that the gate of hell says nobody gets out of here, except, of course, Dante the Pilgrim. That's one of the things that's so intriguing about that sentence over the gate of hell. It does say, Basically, if you come in here, you gotta abandon hope because there's no way out. But we do know there's a way out. We do know that at least one soul, Dante, makes it through that gate and then gets out. Guido is standing firm on text apparently written by God, and yet Dante is able to escape that text. Remember, too, a second problem Vanni Fucci, back amongst all of <laughs> those nasty thieves. Remember Vanni Fucci. He speaks about his life, but he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to be remembered. He seems to indicate, Vanni Fucci, the beast, that he would prefer to be forgotten, but Dante has rather a forced him to say something about himself. Fucci doesn't really think Dante is damned. At least he seems to be coerced into telling his life story with the thought that perhaps it will become known up above. Here, Guido seems to think think that Dante is damned. And I think we should look at that as important to the passage. Guido de Montefeltro cannot see the truth of what is right in front of him. That is, he doesn't see Dante the Pilgrim as a living soul walking through hell. Rather, he just assumes that Dante is one of the damned and will never get back to life and will never be able to tell this tale. That is part of the problem of Guido. He is so self-involved that he cannot see the ramifications or the reality of the situation sitting right in front of him. He basically sums up his entire life with the next line of his speech. I was a military guy, but then got courted as a Franciscan. That is, he wore the typical garb of a Franciscan friar. That's his story, and that's what he wants to stick to. I was a bad guy, but then I became a good guy. Here he is sitting down in hell, and we know that that attempt to sum up his life, I was a bad guy. You know, I did some bad things, all that Romagna chaos up there. I was a Military guide, But, you know, hey, at the end, I repented and became a Franciscan friar, believing, he says, cinched up like that, corded around like that, wrapped up like that, with that belt on, believing cinched up like that, that I could make amends. Oh, he's oily really transactional. And I think that this is one of the things that we should see in this passage, but we should see it for all of fraud. One of the truths of the sins of fraud is that so many of them are transactional in one way or another, whether it be the buying of church offices, the buying of political offices, whether it being the selling of women at from Whether it be using flattery to get what you want, this transactionality is shown here in its most disturbing form, taking something that should be holy and using it essentially to get out of your sins, believing cinched up like that, that I could make amends. He doesn't seem to really repent. It's just that he puts on the garb of a Franciscan thinking, well, eh, this ought to do me good. He still buys that just dressing up like a Franciscan. Listen, I, I clearly think he took vows, but just dressing up like a Franciscan is enough to do it. Well, it's not enough to do it. I'm sure my beliefs, Guido says, would have worked out had it not been for the great Priest. And this line is dripping with irony. He's making a reference to Pope Boniface VIII. And in fact, the Pope in this sequence is Boniface VIII, Dante's great enemy. We've already heard about Boniface in Canto 19, line 52. 50- 3 if you recall Nicholas the 3rd is upside down in his hole with the Simoniacs and when Dante the pilgrim gets to him he first thinks it's the arrival of Boniface this Boniface, Boniface VIII, who got the papacy from Celestine V, who perhaps through fraudulent means got the papacy, although that is contested historically. Nonetheless, Dante sees Boniface VIII as the, what do I want to say, sine qua non, the absolute epitome of church corruption. We should also note that Dante and Guido are making amends. Guido gets lost in life or does some bad things. I was a military guy, but then tries to make amends. Dante also wakes up in a dark wood and finds himself on this journey across the known universe. The only problem is Guido's guide is Boniface VIII, and Dante's guides are Virgil, Beatrice, and and others. That does seem to be quite a difference. And I should also say there are other ways that Dante the Pilgrim is connected to Guido in this speech. It's quite intriguing. If you remember, we talked about the ways that Dante the Pilgrim and Dante the Poet are connected to Ulysses, the other sinner who speaks in this pit. There are distinct ways that Dante is connected to Guido too. And one of them is the attempt to repent for something. Here, Guido is covering up what it was that he did bad as a military guy, although we can assume it wasn't good. In like manner, we don't really know why Dante ended up in that dark wood from which he starts his walk across the universe. However, Guido is at some pains to remove his own culpability. When Dante is in that dark wood, starts to climb the hill, falls back down because of the beast, sees Virgil. The first thing he says is, Miserera, the word from the mass, have mercy on me. Thereby, it seems giving some level of repentance for himself. miserera. Here, just like Francesca amongst the lostful, Guido is at some pains to remove all guilt from himself. I Listen, it would have worked. I could have become a Franciscan right at the end of my life. I could amend all my ways and I could have got to heaven if it hadn't been for the great priest. I hope he gets it bad. Guido says thereby wishing damnation on another soul which is not exactly the nicest thing to do he sent me right back to my old tricks again he's blaming Boniface the 8th for his bad behavior i want you to know guido says the how and the why and well, i should just pause right here and tell you the word he uses for why is a rare latin phrase inside of comedy he says i want you to know the how and the qua re the um qua re. how can i translate that on account of what thing, on account of what does something happen? We I just translated it as the word why. It is a rare Latinism, and it is strange in the text. I always believe that this is a tweak toward Virgil. Remember, it is Guido who recognizes that Virgil is speaking in the Hicksville Lombard dialect. And to throw a little Latin phrase in here is really being a jerk. It's really showing that you're learned. It's really showing that you've been connected to religious orders, Latin, that you know how to read Latin, and that you're certainly not speaking that vulgar dialect that Virgil is carrying on in. While I was still formed from the flesh and bones my mother gave me, and I just want to stop right there. It is so poignant. While I was still formed from the flesh and bones my mother gave me, and many commentators just blip over this phrase to get to my work wasn't like a lion, but more like a fox. Okay, we can get to that in a minute, but I just want to stop and think about this notion of my mother gave me. It is such a poignant and beautiful phrase. While I was still fashioned from the bones and flesh my mother gave me. So Dante is at some pains to tell us that Guido was a real human being. And I think that that's very important. A real human being with a mom, with someone connected to a family. I think it's important for two reasons. One, Guido's humanity is actually on display in this speech as we will discuss. Yes, he's conniving. Yes, he's manipulative. Yes, he's trying to defer all blame off himself. And yet at the same time, his humanity, his sadness is part of this speech. And I think that part of that humanity is expressed in this, the Bones and flesh, my mother gave me. It's also, and we should add this, in direct contrast with all that animal symbolism of the Romagna tyrants, all those green claws and all that animal symbolism we went through. This is human, and I think that that's important to see the human because he is a beast. After all, he does say, "My work wasn't like a lion, but more like a fox." A fox, I should tell you, is a typical anti-clerical symbol. In the anti-clerical and anti-friar diatribes of the Middle Ages, the fox is often a symbol of those friars. We should say that Guido is part beast, part human. Is that fair to say? Because he's in the bones and flesh his mother gave him, but he's also very foxy. He says all the underhanded ways and the subterfuges. I knew them well. He was even skilled in their art so much so that my fame rang out all over my home turf. There is a distinct irony here. Guido praises himself on being underhanded, concealed, on being able to work the back channels. And yet his fame rings out all over his home turf. So his hidden dealings are publicly acknowledged. There is just a deep, irony here that I don't think Guido even sees. He is so proud of himself that he was so good at being underhanded and so good at the art of concealed trickery, then he doesn't realize that being proud of that is itself part of the irony that's going on here. You'll notice that Guido is never named in this passage, and yet all commentators recognize who this is, Guido de Montefeltro, or if we wanted to be really accurate, Guido the First da Montefeltro. In fact, Dante has already brought up Guido in another context, and it's important to notice this here. In The Convivio, The Banquet, an early unfinished work on the pleasures and attractions of philosophy and a philosophical notion of love, in the middle of discussing one of his own poems, Dante brings up this very Guido in Book 4, Chapter 28, at line 8, I'm reading you from the translation of Andrew for Sardi, and I just want to read you this sentence. Oh, you wretched ennoble people who hasten to this port with sails raised high, so that there, where you should be at peace, you capsize with the rush of the wind and lose your very selves in the place you have voyaged so long to reach. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Ulysses to you? Certainly, the knight Lancelot did not wish to enter port with his sails raised high, nor our most noble fellow Italian, Guido da Montefeltro. Rightly did these noble men lower the sales of worldly activity, giving themselves at an advanced age to the rule of a religious order, letting go of every temporal delight and activity. In the convivio, Dante Praises this very Guido for taking religious orders because late in life he tried to make amends. Did Dante change his mind? Has he come across new knowledge? Has his worldview changed? We can't answer any of those questions. We don't have any way to actually make a proof answer to any of those questions. I take it that Dante has changed his mind about this Guido, and now Dante has gotten much more serious about religious orders and what they should do, and so has somehow found himself now at, what do I want to say, at odds with this Guido, who he had formerly praised in the Convivio. Guido goes on, in his speech, to say, when I saw that I had come to that part of my life, when a guy should pull in the ropes of his sails and wind up his rigging. This reminds us directly of Ulysses, and you already now know, it's really kind of quoting the convivio. It's kind of Dante quoting himself, or better yet, it's Guido quoting Dante about Guido. But this bit about Pulling in the ropes, winding up to rigging, all this bit. This kind of comes out of the Convivio. It relates it back to Ulysses, but even more intriguingly, Guido seems to be acknowledging Dante's own words about Guido in a former book, the Convivio. Very complicated stuff. And if you think about it, it edges right up toward, uh, you know, fraud. Passing out through the end of this little bit, what had pleased me in the past began to bug me, so having repented and confessed, I did an about-face, and, oh, wretch that I am, it should have done the trick. Boy, this is that oily man again. Does he really think he would have fooled God? Hey, <laughs> I pulled a fast one up off on God. Does he really think that— I can tell you that this is a hole in repentance theology. I mean, what if I lead a terrible life and do terrible things all my life, and on my deathbed, I suddenly say, ah, I'm going to take the mass and convert, or ah, whatever it is, however it is that you convert, I'm just going to convert on my very be- deathbed. Does that then allow you to be absolved of all that went before? It is a trick in repentance theology, a hole in repentance theology that will try to get solved by the notion of purgatory. But we are a long way from that. Let's continue on with Guido's speech. Guido says, but the prince of the new Pharisees, referring to again, Boniface the Eighth, the Pharisees, those legalistic rabbis who opposed Jesus in the New Testament, who wanted to hold to the letter of the law. But the prince of the new Pharisees, it's unclear exactly how Boniface is a Pharisee, how he's legalistic or holding to some awkward, literal version of a tradition. It's most likely just an insult from the New Testament Pharisees, the prince of the new, and it it kind of takes on the meaning of hypocrites. The prince of the new Pharisees had a war on hand in the Lateran, not against the Saracens or the Jews, mind you. Oh no, this one's enemies were the Christians, not even some guy who'd gone off to vanquish Acre, nor one who'd wanted to traffic in the Sultan's holdings. He didn't even hold his office sacred, or other church orders, or even my own holy cord, the sort that used to make the ones who wore it emaciated. Let's talk through this a minute. So what he's saying is that Boniface has a war going on, but his war is not over in the Levant. It's not part of the Crusades. Rather, it's right in the Lateran. The Lateran palace is where the Pope lived in Rome. It's almost as if Guido here says he had a war on hand in the Vatican. You should also know that the Church of St. John in the Lateran was the Pope's bishopric. The Pope was the Bishop of Rome and his bishopric was in the Church of St. John in the Lateran. So what he's saying is he's got a war going on basically in the Vatican, and he's not warring like the Crusaders should be doing against the Saracens, that is the Moslems, or the Jews this is a rare moment of anti-Semitism in comedy. It's rare because we rarely see Jews in comedy until we get to Paradiso, where we will see lots of Jews. That's long ahead of us. Here, we have only seen one other Jew, Caiaphas, stretched out on the ground where the hypocrites walk over him. This little bit of anti-Semitism that is warring against the Jews is problematic. Is it Guido's Anti-Semitism? Is this Guido's thought or is this Dante's thought? Not clear. Dante is certainly in favor, as we will come to see, of the crusading ethic. And given Dante's mm, approval of the crusades, There could be an anti-Semitism here escaping from Dante, or you could say, no, this is a characterization of Guido. In any event, the Pope's enemies are other Christians. And what is he talking about here? He's talking about the Colonna family. The Colonna family opposed Boniface's ascent to the papacy. They believed that Celestine V had resigned under fraudulent means or that his resignation was invalid, and they did not believe that Boniface VIII was the legitimate heir to the papal throne. They were represented by two brothers, Stefano and Jacopo Colonna, who were both cardinals. And opposed Boniface's election. Stefano, in fact, stole from the papal treasury, maybe goods, maybe money. He stole from the papal treasury and escaped down to their castle in Palestrina. And there, the Pope waged war against them. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's making war against Christians, not even some guy who'd gone off to Vanquish Acre. That is Acre, which is now in North. Israel. It was taken by Baldwin I in an early crusade in 1104. It was lost in 1187 to Islamic fighters. It was retaken in 1191 by Richard the Lionhearted and Philippe Augustus of France, and it was held for a hundred years until 1291, just before comedy is set in the year 1300. It was lost in 1291 to Islamic troops and its loss was the final collapse of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. This is all very recent news and basically what Guido and perhaps Dante behind him is saying is Boniface isn't even worried about the collapse of the crusader holdings. They're not out over. Over there fighting for any territory or even trying to traffic in the sultan's goods. In fact, he didn't even hold as the his own officer, or other church orders, or even my holy cord, sacred, the sort that used to make the ones who wore it emaciated. Don't forget that Dante, Wears a cord. We found this out in Canto 16, lines 106 through 108, when Dante takes the cord off that's around his waist and Virgil throws it over the edge to call the beast of fraud up so that they can ride down on its back. Dante also wears a cord, another way he and Guido are connected. And I should just add one final point before we go into the speech. It's not clear in the speech that that line, the sort that used to make the ones who wore it emaciated or make them thin, it's not clear whether that's a positive or a negative in the speech. Is it that the in the old days, Franciscan friars would put on the garments of a Franciscan friar and therefore uh, deny the pleasures of the flesh and so get very thin from kind of uh, not eating, fasting, etc., denying the flesh? Or is it that they are emaciated like that she-wolf early on in the slope of hell and that they're always hungry and ready to bilk other people out of their money? But as Constantine once sought out Sylvester up on Monte Sorate to cure him of leprosy, so this one called me in as his physician to heal his feverish pride. He asked my counsel and I kept quiet because his speech sounded like rank, Drunkenness. Okay, let's unpack this for a minute. First of all, Guido does not say Monte Sorate, that is the current name of the place. Guido in Dante in the Florentine says Soracte. It is a ridge in the Tiber River Valley outside of Rome. Pope Sylvester I had hidden out to escape from Constantine and the persecution of Christians that the Emperor Constantine was enacting. Constantine got leprosy because of his persecution of the Christians. He sought out Pope Sylvester I, who was pope from a about 314 to 335 along in there. He sought him out. Sylvester cured him of his leprosy. Constantine repented, according to some sources, and became a Christian. Dante is getting this story of Constantine and Sylvester from Jacobus de Voragine. He was the Archbishop of Genoa, and he wrote the golden legend, the legend of all kinds of saintly acts and uh, miracles that go along with those acts. Dante is picking this story up from there, but there are two things we should note. One, when Sylvester heals Constantine, medievals think that it is a this point that Constantine leaves the the Italian peninsula and goes to the city that he then calls Constantinople after himself to Byzantium and rules from the east, thereby, according to medieval thought, leaving the papacy in charge with the western part of the empire. This is the famous donation of Constantine, and it's already come up. It came up in Canto 19, where we had the reference of Boniface VIII. It's this medieval forgery, we now know it's a forgery, in which Constantine allegedly gave the western part of the empire to the papacy. Dante is highly opposed to this, and it's interesting that it comes up in this passage, which is analogous to its arrival in the passage in Cato 19 when Boniface again comes up. Boniface calls Le Guido in to heal him of his feverish pride and he asks what he should do about this Colonna family that is rebelling against his papal rule. Guido, at first, is completely silent because his speech sounded like raving. It sounded like drunkenness. It didn't sound like a normal person should ask anything like this. This whole bit is Guido's great justification for himself. Listen, I kept quiet because it was so insane that he's trying to get me to figure out what to do with the Colonna's. I shouldn't be um, I, uh, advising him I'm just a lone, lowly Franciscan friar which he's not but he's become one to repent for his previous sins now comes the offer So Boniface goes on. Don't let your heart be troubled. I grant you absolution before anything happens. Now you can let me know how to raise Palestrina to the ground. As you know, I can lock and unlock heaven itself because of this pair of keys that my predecessor didn't value properly. Oh, wow. So what is basically happening here is Boniface is offering Guido... What do we want to say? A preemptive pardon. It's like it's like when Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon in u s presidential history, and Nixon was never convicted of any crimes. How do you pardon someone? who is innocent until proven guilty, someone who has never been proved guilty. Well, the same thing here. This is a preemptive pardon. You haven't been tried for anything. You haven't done anything yet. You're about to do something, but don't worry. I grant you absolution in advance for anything that you might do. You know that there there is no way that this can work, but nonetheless, it's what Boniface claims. Now you can let me know how to raise Palestrina and I should tell you that in the text the city is called Penestrino. Boniface says I can lock and unlock heaven itself because of the pair of keys. That's those keys of the papacy. The keys of the two keys that Jesus offers to Peter that become the symbol of the papacy. According to Aquinas, those keys represent discretion and penance. The papal father is the ultimate father confessor, and he then with his two keys has the ability to discern what your true sin is, discretion, and then offer you penance or get you out of any kind of penance. And then in the final moment, he says that my predecessor, that's Celestine V, didn't value properly. This is nasty, transactional, fraudulent behavior. I got the keys that Jesus gave to Peter. I can free you in advance from any guilt, and I know how to value the power of these keys. This is the offer, and it is as transactional, as fraudulent, and as nasty as anything that Guido himself does in his life. I thought his weighty argument so pushed me on that my silence seemed the worst way to go. So I said, Father, since you wash me clean of the sin into which I'm going to fall, promise a lot, but deliver far less. That's how to triumph from your exalted throne. That's the statement. In other words, um, you know, promise the Colonna family a great deal, but boy don't follow up on those promises give them a lot less than that and in fact that's what happens they beg for forgiveness the colonus pope boniface Uh, essentially allows them a level of forgiveness, says he will forgive the family, and then proceeds to essentially burn Palestrina to the ground and burn their family holdings to the ground. He does promise them something, that is, I'll forgive you for opposing me, and then goes ahead and absolutely destroys the family. You'll notice, too, that this is exactly intrinsically what Guido himself suffers. He was promised a lot, absolution in advance, and he got far less. He got sent to hell. You'll notice, too... That Guido thinks his choice is between excommunication and the council that will lead to the massacre of the Colonna family. Because after all, the Pope has brought up his keys, and part of his discretion is excommunication, that he can cut you out of heaven. And so Guido himself seems to believe that the choice, if he stayed silent, would be then to get excommunicated. The Pope would then send him to hell or he can say what he really thinks as a former warrior. We should note again that Guido himself seems to be backing out of any culpability here. I mean, Guido himself is saying, I thought his weighty argument so pushed me on. I didn't do anything. This is all very intriguing, oily, difficult, and at the same time, human. Let's talk about three implications from Guido's speech so far. 1. Guido is a terrible storyteller. He tells you the ending at the very first. He backs up, he explains, and then he then as we will see in the next passage, he lets the devil have the climax to his own story rather than making himself the climax. Does having something to hide, something about yourself that you want to cover up, ha- the, the ability to cover up your faults, does that form narrative if you've got something to hide is it impossible for you to tell a straight story and that certainly seems to be the case with Guido he's got a lot to hide he's constantly trying to cover his own butt in this story and yet at the same time he can't tell the story in a linear fashion you will notice that Ulysses story is gloriously linear this story is backwards and forwards. He tells you the end. It should have worked. It didn't work. I want to tell you why. Blah, blah, blah. Backing up, going forward. And in the next passage, we'll see not even giving himself the prime place inside the story itself. It's very hard for me not to connect this all with that bit about the Sicilian bull and being burned alive as the craftsman of the Sicilian bull. We talked about this in a previous episode, the metaphor that begins this entire canto. There is a way in which Guido is a terrible storyteller caught in his own story that he can't extricate himself from in perhaps the same way that Dante is not a terrible storyteller, but caught in this tale. And now that you've started on this journey across the known universe, there is literally no way out of it. Yet Dante is able to tell the story of his journey across the universe without really ever filling us in on what is the besetting sin that gets him to that dark wood. Dante can tell a straight story without necessarily revealing everything, whereas in Guido's case, it causes the story to falter. And surely, I don't have to point out, that for all of us, when we don't tell the full truth, our story falters. Okay, a second implication. This entire narrative is built on the confessio-topus, Medieval writing works by topoi, that is the Greek word for place, a topos. A topos is a form of narrative, and you write by assembling topoi, that's the plural, topoi together. This is the confessio. Topas, or the I Confess Topas, it arises from Saint Augustine and his Confessions. It is, if you know Chaucer, it is the introduction to the Pardoner's Tale, in which the Pardoner confesses that he's a fraud, but he. Doesn't seem to care. It has certain characteristics, and let me tell you some of these characteristics of the confessio topos, a very common medieval topos, a way to write a story. One, it always has a rationale for bad behavior in further bad behavior. I confess my guilt to you that I did something wrong, or I give you the reason why I did it wrong, and I'm trying to tell you this so you'll sympathize with me, but all I'm re- doing is revealing more of my bad behavior. For example, in the partner's introduction to his tale in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, the partner then tells you know that he's a fraud, and he says... He's so greedy that he makes people pay to kiss his relics, which are really just pig's bones. That whole bit that the partner engages in is rationalizing his bad behavior, greed, by exposing other, even worse, behavior. That is having people basically kiss pig's bones thinking that they're saint's bones. A Confessio Topos also always involves a realization sequence, and we will get that realization sequence in the next episode of this podcast. And by the late Middle Ages, mostly, the Confessio topas in medieval lit is an ironic rewriting of St. Augustine. It's, it leads to a realization, a confession that makes no difference. It does in the Pardoner's Tale— And it does here too. Guido's big confession of his guilt makes no difference. And the last point, and this is a point that has been debated for a million years and will continue to be debated, well, 700 years, and will continue to be debated for a long time. Did Dante invent this story? It's hard to to know. There is an account that is remarkably similar to Dante's account. It is by the writer Ricobaldo da Ferrara, Ricobaldo of Ferrara, and it's in his Chronicle. And let me just read you the passage, an English translation of the passage. Um, It's written in Latin. At the time, there was a Franciscan named Guido, a former count of Montefeltro, who was a general of the Ghibellines. Pope Boniface called him in and urged him to become leader in the war against the rebellious cardinals. That's that Colonna family. And when he persisted in refusing to have any part of it, the Pope said, At least you can advise me how to get the better of them. To which Guido replied, promise much, but fulfill little. That seems like the story we just read, right? And I want to tell you that there are dozens of commentators who debate this. Was this Ricobaldo story known to Dante or, and this is more intriguing, is Dante's made up story becoming part of history? We do know that Ricobaldo writes this sometime before 1313, maybe as early as 1308, which would put it very early in the writing of comedy. If Dante is picking this up from Ricobaldo, then he's picking it up pretty early, and it's kind of amazing that he would even have a copy of Ricobaldo's Chronicle, because manuscripts didn't circulate very easily. If, on the other hand, this was written after Ricobaldo has already read bits and pieces of Inferno, then Dante himself is making up history that is becoming part of the official record. It's the same with Filippo Vellani's account. He also tells about the Colonna family being destroyed by Boniface. That's probably more secure in its history. It's not necessarily picking anything up from Dante, except Filippo Vellani in his chronicle, his history of what's going on in central Italy, refers to Guido da Montefeltro as, quote, the new Ulysses, unquote. That has also bedeviled commentators. Is Vellani picking up from Dante and basically giving guido the ulysses moniker because of inferno this does tell us something about comedy and that is that comedy is so influential that it could be that it itself is rewriting the history of the central italian peninsula and leaving stories that get picked up as historical fact if that's not enough to keep reading comedy, then I don't know what is, but there's a lot left. We've got to get to the end of Guido's speech. He's still got to tell the story with the devil as the climax. That's all up in the next episode of Walking with Dante. Rate this podcast, subscribe to it. I would really appreciate a rating. It would really help. This has been a long episode. It was difficult to get through Guido's speech. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Instead, I'm going to save it for the next episode and read the entire translation, my entire translation, of Guido's speech at the end of the next episode. So, again, subscribe, rate, do that stuff for me, please. I super appreciate it. Thanks for being on the journey with me. Connect with me on Twitter. under my own name, Mark Scarborough. Go to my website, MarkScarborough.com, and drop a comment about this episode there. Otherwise, I will see you back for the next bit of Guido's speech.